Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Critical race theory. We've been hearing a lot about the term these days, but what exactly is it? What does it mean, and why should you be worried that this poison is infecting American institutions from our education system to the workplace? Today, I get you all the answers. This is The Truth with Lisa Booth. Welcome back to The Truth with Lisa Booth. I've got a really, really interesting show for you guys this week. My guest is Vivek Ramaswamy. He's an incredibly successful entrepreneur. He's founded multi-billion dollar enterprises, led a biotech company as CEO, became a hedge fund partner in his 20s, trained as a scientist at Harvard and a lawyer at Yale. Needless to say, he's not a dumb guy. Vivek is also the author of the forthcoming book, Woke Inc., which takes us inside corporate America's social justice scam. It comes out this August, and after talking to him, I can't wait to read it. I think it's going to be really interesting. Vivek has lived the American dream. His parents came here from India as immigrants, and he has built something for himself. He knows how unique and amazing America is, and that's why he is so concerned about critical race theory infecting America's institutions. Also, as an entrepreneur, he knows a thing or two about what's happening in corporate America. Today, Vivek and I discuss critical race theory, this cancer, cancer that is infecting our country right now. We're going to discuss the dangers of wokeness, his career in business, and so much more. And with that, I want to welcome Vivek Ramaswamy to the show. Vivek, thanks for coming on The Truth with Lisa Booth. Thanks for having me. So your parents immigrated from India how did that shape your childhood growing up? Well, look, I actually, I was in second grade in 1993 when I actually watched Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech for the first time. And in a certain sense, when I watched that speech, it actually made me think about my parents. That, that was the one where he said he wanted his kids to grow up in a country where they'd be judged not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. And, and as I thought about it in the years since then, that was that was really the dream that allowed my own parents to succeed in the way that they had, right? My dad came halfway across the world in the late 1970s with a thick Indian accent, no dollars in his pocket, and built a career as an engineer at GE in Cincinnati over the course of 40 years. My mom was a geriatric psychiatrist who treated patients with Alzheimer's disease for her entire career, despite being a foreign medical graduate. And to me, it was something that I took inspiration from 
and that I definitely couldn't do that today. What they did, pack my bags, go halfway around the world, go to a different country with a different culture, a, a different surrounding. And by the way, in an era where we didn't have an internet, they had to have a, a loose phone connection. I wouldn't be able to do that. So in a certain sense, I took a lot of inspiration from the courage that my parents had in voting with their feet to come to a place where they wanted to build a new life. But it was also a reminder of what the place they came to America was all about was a place where they could live that dream that I learned about even when I was a young kid, that no matter who you are or what the color of your skin is, we now live in a country where you'd be judged on the content of your character and the content of your accomplishments rather than the color of your skin or where you were born. And and to me, that's part of why I was always been partial to the American dream is that it wasn't just something I studied in school. It was something that my family and I had the privilege of living. But at what point do you think this focus or, or at what point do you think that came into focus? I mean, at what point was there a shift or, or, or when do you think this happened in the country in terms of just this intense identity politics focus? Yeah, look, I think that the one of the beautiful things about the American dream is something that it's something that we aspire to. Right. It's not a destination that we reach. It is a vision that we aspire to, which means we're always going to fall short. And so I think for as long as we've overcome the civil rights, the civil rights, the civil rights movement overcame a lot of historical injustices. You know, we were never fully all the way there. And so in the 90s began the birth of critical race theory, the idea that there were these invisible power structures that governed the social universe, kind of like Karl Marx said it in the 1890s. He thought there were these economic power relationships. There was the emergence of this new academic movement in the 90s, critical race theory and related wokeism that said that actually, no, it's not just economic disempowerment, it's racial disempowerment. And bigotry and misogyny and racism that govern our social forces. And this is a fringe theory in the academy, and it added something to the marketplace of ideas. It wasn't something that I personally subscribe to, but there's always something about a person who wants to challenge the system that I respect, whether or not I agree with them. When this really changed, actually, was an untold story that begins with the 2008 financial crisis. When this went from being about challenging the system when wokeism actually became the new system itself. And it was a tricky, it was a tricky trade underlying how that happened. But the way it worked was after 2008, corporations were the bad guys. Wall Street was the enemy. Corporate power was the target for the old left. And what they wanted to do was take money from wealthy corporations and redistribute it to poor people. Agree or disagree, that's what the old left wanted to do. And something new happened in the post-2008 period where there was this new left, this new woke left that actually said that, no, it wasn't really about economic injustice or poverty. No, it was about racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry. And that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for the most powerful companies in the United States. It presented an opportunity of a generation for Wall Street because Occupy Wall Street's a tough pill to swallow. But this woke stuff was actually pretty easy. And so basically Wall Street jumped on the woke bandwagon, agreed to lend it not only its money, but its legitimacy to this new racial identity-based movement. And together, you got a bunch of big banks that got together with a bunch of woke millennials. Together, they birthed woke capitalism. And then they put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption. And that actually proved to be a really convenient trade that took this nascent idea of wokeness from the halls of the academy and supercharged it with the potency of capitalism. And then once wokeness got got in bed with capitalism, that's actually when it became unstoppable. And so Silicon Valley did the same thing, a backroom bargain where they say they're going to censor content online that the woke movement doesn't want to hear. And in return, the woke movement agrees to work with the Democratic Party to leave their monopoly power intact. The rest of corporate America started following the same pattern. That's really when wokeness became unstoppable is when it merged with capitalism. And capitalism is a powerful tool usually to organize the society's products and services and economic affairs, but now it's being used to organize society's social affairs too under this guise of wokeness. So long story there, but but uh, if you want it, it, the Redux version, that's kind of how it goes. No, I, I think that's incredibly interesting. And, and so you've sort of existed, though, in a lot of these structures where, you know, wokeism is so prevalent, right? So you graduated undergrad at Harvard, you went to Yale Law School, you're an entrepreneur, you've existed in the biotech industry, I mean, how much indoctrination did you find going on when you went to school at Harvard and Yale? Well, I actually think it's changed a lot over the last decade. So to be clear, Harvard and Yale were definitely left-leaning places at the point at the point in time where I was there. 
But I'll tell you this, Lisa, I actually benefited from it, right? I think I got a better education than most of my peers because I didn't necessarily subscribe to liberal dogma. And that means you get your views challenged. And that means sometimes you change your view. And sometimes it means that you come out with your same view, but with a better understanding of why it is you believe what you do rather than just knowing what it is that you believe. So I was actually grateful for it. And when I went to Harvard, I graduated in 2007, I still found it to be a place that was about the intellectual meritocracy in the marketplace of ideas where the best ideas and the best arguments win on their own terms, irrespective of the background or the color of the skin of the person who's making that argument. It was, it was definitely tilted in one direction, but I actually viewed that as tilted in my favor in that by being in the intellectual minority, I actually got a better education out of it. I think things changed dramatically over the decade. I, over the last decade, I do not think that's the intellectual environment at Harvard today. It is definitely not the intellectual environment at Yale today. And to, now, what you say is merged with your identity, that somebody can't evaluate your ideas without also evaluating the other inherited attributes that you were born with, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation. And there was this bizarre move, intellectual move over the course of the last few years, where race actually meant something that went even beyond the color of your skin. Ayanna Presley, a member of the squad, summed it up actually pretty well last year when she said, we don't want any more black faces that don't want to be black voices. We don't want any more brown faces that don't want to be brown voices. As a side note, I definitely don't fit her description of what counts as a brown voice, despite the fact that I have brown skin. But to me, being brown or being black was always about a skin color, not about a voice. And so now that created the opportunity to say that actually there's such a thing as a black voice and a brown voice. And now it's just one step further to say that if you then disagree with any of those claims, that actually means you're racist, not in the conventional sense that we think of racism as discriminating on the basis of skin color, but now racism as disagreeing with a dogma, even in good faith, in the spirit of open debate. And that's really what chilled open debate in this country and set, set in this new era, reigned in this new era of fear that has supplanted our original culture of free speech and open debate. And, and the irony in all of this is that in the name of diversity, we've then sacrificed true diversity of thought, including at our leading universities. I've seen it firsthand. In the name of democracy, democracy is not just about casting some ballot every November. In the name of democracy, we've actually sacrificed our most important democratic ideals of free speech and open debate. And in the name of inclusion, including in our educational institutions, we've created this new exclusionary culture where certain points of view just aren't welcome. And so you know, for me, I'm writing this book I told you about. I'm not doing it as a journalist that's reporting on my findings. I consider myself actually to be something more of a whistleblower, having been in elite Ivy League institutions, having been in elite hedge funds and then started a company, a number of companies that have been venture backed and successful in the worlds of New York finance to Silicon Valley to biotech. I've had firsthand experiences that made me compelled to say that somebody needs to speak up, not from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out to really reveal the heart of what's going on, because we're going to need a better way forward. But in order to forge a better way forward, we're going to first need to understand the essence of the problem that has really taken a chokehold of all of our major institutions in the private sector, not just corporate America, but nonprofits, museums, philanthropies, universities, educational institutions, and then, of course, the government itself. Well, and as you just laid out and as I laid out in the intro of the show and as our listeners know, I mean, look, you've accomplished. I, I was telling you earlier when we were talking, I, I was you know, telling you about some of the things I was working on. I, I feel lazy in comparison. You've accomplished so much at your age. But, you know, as you've mentioned, you were a hedge fund partner in your 20s, founded multi-billion dollar enterprises. Let, you lead a biotech company. You're on Forbes, America's Richest Entrepreneurs, under 40 list. I've not made the list. I'm 36. So maybe I have a couple of years. But... You've accomplished a lot. And lately, you know, you've been vocal about this topic. You're writing a book, Woke Inc., which is out August 17th, 2020. Why? What What compelled you? Why did you feel? Because obviously there's a level of risk. There's always a level of risk in speaking out, per, you know, particularly uh, for you and, you know, with companies and with your work. Why? Why did you speak out? Yeah, look, I, I felt some sense of obligation to do it. I actually consider this my form of, of public service, at least in the near term, because I told you about it at the very beginning. It's near and dear to my heart, the American dream, because I've lived it, right? I've gone in a single generation from the, being the kid of immigrants who came to this country with literally no money 40 years ago to becoming the founder of multi-billion dollar companies, including one that's going public this year for over $7 billion in a single generation. 
that was the dream that I was able to live. And, you know, as I led a company as CEO for seven years, I developed medicines for a number of diseases. Probably the one I'm most proud of is a drug for the treatment of prostate cancer. But at the end of the day, there was a new cancer that even the best of science wasn't going to address. It was a cultural cancer, not a biological cancer. And it was a cancer that threatened to kill that dream that I really cared about. And that was, of course, the cancer that, I, that we all call woke culture. And, and I basically think the essence of woke culture is that it's about waking us up from the American dream. And that's what happened over the course of the last decade. We woke up. And the problem when you wake up from a dream is that pretty soon you forget what it was even about. You might remember how it felt to be in it. And let enough time pass, you forget how, we, how it felt to be in the dream too. And that's the phase that I think we're in. I don't think it's irreversible quite yet. I think that if the 2010s were about celebrating our diversity and our differences ad nauseum, in my opinion, the 2020s ought to be about reviving our shared sense about who we are as a people. But like I said, you only get a little bit of time once you've woken up from a dream to go back to remembering what it was all about. And I think that's the period that we're in. So I felt some sense of urgency to be able to speak out. I actually had to make a pretty tough decision earlier this year when I stepped down as CEO of my company to do it. I do think that when a lot of left-leaning CEOs like Mark Benioff or whoever write books about their own politics, it tends to help their businesses. But the reality of the world we live in is that that standard isn't applied evenly. And it was really important for me to practice what I preached, by the way. I think business and politics should be kept apart. I, I definitely uh, endeavored to never use the business to foist my political views on anyone. I was always only speaking up as a citizen. But as I really enter the public sphere with the book and a lot of the other initiatives I'm working on, I wanted to practice what I preached. And, you know, in order to really protect the company's voice as separate from my own, I stepped down as my, from my role as CEO. So I could really speak not as a CEO, but as a citizen. But the flip side of that is I'm going to speak with candor in an unvarnished way. And, and I really lay out a lot in the book that's probably going to take a lot of people by surprise. That is going to leave me with fewer friends at elite ski con at elite conferences in fancy ski towns than I might have otherwise had. But I do think that that's the kind of sacrifice that people in my position are going to have to be willing to make if we're going to turn this cultural tide. So it was the least that I could do. Can you give us a highlight from that? I mean, now you've piqued my interest. <laughs> yeah, well, um, well, look, it's, it's in the final stages of being touched up. The book's available for pre-order now. It comes out mid-August. But you know, look, I talk a little bit about some of my experiences in, in, you know, seeing this firsthand. And, and I guess having been the CEO of a company, I actually am, am really actually pretty sympathetic to the younger generation of workers who want to join a company who does more than just print a buck by making products that matter. In fact, that was part of our pitch as a biotech company is that, you don't want to be part of a generation that's just looking at turning, you know, a wad of cash into a bigger wad of cash by going to Wall Street. And, I, and by the way, I've done that. I worked at Edge Fund for a while. Or you don't really want to be programming an app that allows you to click one millisecond faster on some guy with a mustache on an app that disappears via text message, whatever it is. You want to be applying your talents to something that matters. Come do it at a place that allows you to make medicines for patients who need them by fixing a broken industry. So that was actually one of the pitches for recruiting employees early in the early days of when I even started my company back in 2014. So I think that it's a good thing when capitalism works by making products that matter for people who really need them. Where I think it goes awry is when these businesses espouse social values that have nothing to do with their businesses as a way of signaling their virtue, but in ways that actually serve as a distraction from the essence of what those businesses ought to be about, not just for themselves, but a distraction for our democracy. And I guess one of the things that I talk about in the book is some of my experiences in dealing with the next generation of talent, right? If I'm a millennial, you know, the Gen Z talent pool looking to enter the workforce, one of the things I've learned is they're actually really hungry for a cause, hungry for a sense of purpose. If I may say it, hungry for identity. And I think we live in a moment where we have to recognize that you know, religion has nearly disappeared. Patriotism is on the decline. And human beings, especially young human beings, are hungry for a cause. And that black hole, that vacuum for purpose and identity and meaning, that's actually the void that wokeness is filling. It's become the equivalent of the modern opioid for the masses. And I think that that has our work cut out for us in fighting this, not to not to just go superficially, as many on the right seem prone to do and countering wokeness, but rather to do the harder work of rebuilding a shared vision of 
not only what it means to be a conservative, but what it means to be an American, which we lack a good answer to that question today in 2021. I think rebuilding that answer and reviving a new brand of Americanism as that same sense of shared purpose could actually be the cultural cure that we need. And one of the things I talk about in the book is some of my firsthand experiences of first becoming really frustrated and sort of wringing my hands in the air with what exactly happened over the last 10 years that allowed our private sector to become as effete as it has with respect to the pursuit of these flimsy social causes and values to really reflecting more deeply on the fact that actually a lot of these people, and, and, I, and I probably grew more sympathetic to it because many of them have worked for me over time, are, are really well-motivated, talented if they're given the right mission, even hardworking people, but who need to have their hunger for purpose and hunger for change and hunger for identity and hunger for a cause satisfied with a cause that's far more meaningful than the skin deep attributes that corporations and elite institutions are selling them today. I think it's the equivalent of Virginia Slim's advertising to insecure teenagers back in the 1990s. That's effectively what war corporations are doing today to the next generation of Americans. But what impact does it have on companies in the sense, you know, one of the biggest things I hear from a lot of people in corporate America is there's just this intense, intense desire. It's all about diversity, diversity, you know, skin color, meeting quotas, et cetera. What impact does it have on a company when that's the focus versus just a meritocracy? Who's best for the job, regardless of their skin color? And and also that's sort of belittling to think that someone can't get a job based off of you know, meritocracy and just based off of, uh, you know, skill sets. And it has to be focused purely on race. I I agree with you. I mean, if you just look at United Airlines in the last month, for example, said that 50 percent of the pilots in the cockpit had to be women or persons of color. By the way, an expression that I detest, taking 150 cultures and, and lumping them into one new culture, which we call of color. But anyway, so they said women or people of color in the cockpit had to be 50 percent, even if that meant throwing out the tests that they used to use to test for the competence of their pilots. And that reveals the essence of what's going on is today in the name of diversity, we have actually sacrificed excellence itself, the pursuit of excellence. And, you know, make no mistake, I think diversity is a good thing. Diversity of thought is what it's supposed to be about. And I think diversity of thought is a means to the end of achieving excellence. But now in the name of diversity, we have sacrificed both diversity of thought as well as our pursuit of excellence. And so I think that's how it impacts our companies. I think that's how it impacts our, our educational institutions. But there's, there's a separate impact too, Lisa, which is in the other direction, which I think is maybe even more important, is not just the way in which these new political values infect private enterprises to operate less efficiently than they otherwise would, which is a real problem. But Milton Friedman could have told you about that 50 years ago when he wrote his first critique of stakeholder capitalism in 1970. No, the problem today is actually perhaps even greater in the other direction, the way in which woke businesses are actually infecting American democracy. And that's actually what makes me even more worried, not as a CEO or a leader, former CEO or leader of a business, but as an American citizen worried about corporate overreach, where we're actually creating a modern version of old world Europe, where a small group of institutional elites get in a backroom deal, determining what the common ideals for society ought to be, when in fact, America was supposed to be a rejection of corporatism, a rejection of corporatocracy, to create a world in which on our most important moral questions, we decided on the basis of a one vote, one person, one vote system, rather than a one dollar, one vote system. And I think that's actually the more da- most dangerous trend of all, where corporations become the new moral arbiters. We then effectively live in a one dollar, one vote system where corporations use their market power to actually influence the marketplace of ideas. And that's something that really concerns me this year when you see you know, Major League Baseball leaving Atlanta in protest over a, a new voting law in Georgia. These used to be the eight political institutions that brought us together, irrespective of whether we were Democrat or Republican, irrespective of whether we were black or white. We could still get together in an apolitical space like a baseball stadium and come together. And the foundation for democracy depends on actually certain common spaces where we could all come together that are apolitical. And I'm worried that we're actually in the name of protecting democracy, in the case of the Georgia voting law, we are actually eroding the true foundation for democracy itself in terms of the real free speech and open debate where every citizen's voice actually counts equally rather than some corporation having a special say. How do you rein that in, though? Yeah. So I talk about some legal solutions in the book that I think in the short term are pretty important. Um, how, how technical do you? How technical are you open to getting, Lisa? Because I could, I could lay a couple. No, I mean I, I'm, I'm a nerd, so I, I, I like it. Okay, so, so, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go on, and you're going to have to stop me. Uh, but, but let me, let me, let me give you, let me give you a couple 
simple legal solutions. All right. The simplest one is that I think we need to add political belief as a protected class right up next to race, sex, sexual orientation post Bostock last year, the Supreme Court ruling in that case and religion in the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There is no good reason why a corporation should be able to fire someone for their political belief when they can't fire them for their religious belief or their race or their sex. And my own view is that the last thing we should want to do in general is to apply another constraint to what private businesses can and can't do. That's what the libertarian side of my brain says. That's what I would have told you 10 years ago. But my general view today is in the legal code, you can't have it both ways, where we say we don't trust the market to police certain forms of discrimination, but we unquestioningly trust the market to police other forms of discrimination. And the punchline is if you can't fire somebody from their job just because they're black or Muslim or gay, or you can't deplatform somebody because they're brown or Muslim or gay or whatever, then you shouldn't be able to fire them or deplatform them just because they're an outspoken conservative either. And that's not a theoretical issue anymore. If it can happen to the 45th president of the United States, it can happen to anybody. So, so those are the kinds of some of the kinds of solutions I talk about in the book, generally of the of the mold that you can't have it both ways. Political belief as a as a protected class alongside the other protected classes. Section 230 reform, by the way, which says that actually normal private companies ought to be able to determine what shows up on their websites and what doesn't. I agree with that. But the private companies today that are doing it in Silicon Valley are effectively acting as instruments of the state. Because if you notice, this has actually gone up a lot over the course of the last year after Democrats took control of not only the House, but then the Senate and then the White House. And they call these companies up to testify every few months and they say, hey, if you don't take down hate speech and you don't take down misinformation and you don't take down content that we, by the way, disagree with as Democrats in Washington, D.C., then we're going to come after you. We're going to regulate you. We're going to break you up. We're going to make it swift. We're going to make it punitive. And so these guys get back on their private jets, fly back to the other coast and do exactly what their government overlords told them to do. But the problem with that is it's just a reverse form of crony capitalism where Government agents today are doing indirectly through the back door, using private companies to accomplish what they directly can't do under the Constitution, namely under the First Amendment. And so my view is, if you find yourself in a situation today when private companies are being used as pawns, especially by this new administration, to do indirectly what government could not directly do through the front door, then those private companies, when they're engaging in those narrow sets of activities, should be bound by the same constraints as the federal government itself. And guess what? In the case of big tech, and, and all Internet companies, by the way, there's Section 230 immunity to give them li freedom from state liability when they go out and do exactly that. So my own view is that, again, you can't have it both ways. Either you're a private company that behaves as a private company does, or if you're operating at behest of liberals in, in control of, as the party in power, and by the way, you're immunized by Section 230 immunity to do it, then you can opt into getting that federal immunity. But if you do, you're bound by the same constraints as the federal government itself, namely the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment. So th those are some of the bigger picture ideas. I can also get into some granular ideas uh, relating to the business judgment rule, relating to rollbacks on limited shareholder liability for a lot of these woke capitalists or woke investors that are using corporations as pawns to advance their social agendas. That, in my opinion, is actually an abuse of the corporate form, an abuse of limited liability that we ought to police. On the flip side, I think when there are CEOs who are gone rogue and are, are ultimately using shareholder resources to advance social goals, there's right now a legal doctrine that protects them called the business judgment rule, which says that executives can't be sued for making good business judgments. That should only apply insofar as they're actually making business judgments, not social judgments. And shareholders should be able to ultimately bring suit against executives who have gone rogue in using their seats of power in a corporation to be able to push their own personal values. Those are the kinds of solutions I talk about in the book that get really uh, more and more technical. Uh, but I go from, you know, all, all the way from the big picture ideas down to some granular ideas that can, I think, stop woke capitalism as we know it in its tracks. But at least at the end of the day, I would be the first person to say that still these legal solutions are really just a form of symptomatic therapy. As I said earlier, what we really need is a cultural cure, a, a new vision of what it actually means to be an American, irrespective of the color of your skin or your race or your gender, your sexual orientation, in a way that, you know, in a way that really dilutes wokeism to irrelevance. And that's actually going to be even harder work than implementing some of these legal solutions. But in the short term, I do think we're in a bit of an emergency here. We do need some legal solutions to at least serve as that symptomatic therapy. Vivek, let's hold it right there. We got to take a quick break. Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them. 
sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once, and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4patriots.com Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to fourpatriots.com slash Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Let's say I get fired for being conservative. What can I do now about it from a legal perspective? Yeah, so, so, so actually... You bring up a really good point. My ideal fix in most of these cases would be a statutory fix, amending Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, amending Section 230. Because that would also take, yeah, that, that would, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is what is available now yeah, under the law for recourse. But actually, you bring up a really good point. I think people can bring legal action now in federal court. Let's take the big tech censorship example first, and then I'll go to the woke employee firings, uh, the, the woke corporations firing right-wing employees in a second. So let's talk about the big tech censorship. Actually, there is good Supreme Court case law today, which actually says the obvious, what you would expect it to say, that the government cannot deputize private actors to do indirectly what the government is prohibited from doing under the Constitution. There's a great case, uh, it's called Bantam Books from, from the 1960s, I believe, where there was a bookstore owner that wanted to sell a lot of books. And there was a local prosecutor that didn't want him. They didn't like one of the books that he was selling. And so he came to the bookstore owner and he said, you know what? If you don't stop selling these books, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to prosecute you. So for some other unrelated crime. So the bookstore owner, of course, caved to the pressure and stopped selling the book. Well, somebody else wanted to buy the book and they brought the case and they said, hey, I know you're a bookstore owner. And normally you can choose what book you sell and what book you don't. But this wasn't a bookstore owner making that decision as a proprietor. It was actually state action in the garb of private enterprise. And you know what? They won that case, which said that actually if the bookstore owner was just responding to a threat from a prosecutor who's really a public figure, then actually the thing that we have is state action that ought to be governed by the First Amendment. And so that's actually just one example among many, but there's good Supreme Court doctrine on this. I actually made an argument to this effect in the Wall Street Journal in January of this year, and, and I'm proud to say that that argument was referenced by Clarence Thomas in a recent opinion that he wrote. I think he's actually thrown the gauntlet, inviting the right plaintiff to bring that case. Personally, I think one of those plaintiffs could be President Donald Trump himself bringing potentially the iconic case of our time, saying that actually what Facebook and Twitter did 
in deplatforming him was actually a version of political censorship that might be allowed if these were operating as normal private companies. But if they're doing it as instruments of the state, of the party in power, responsive to their threats, and by the way, immunized by the federal government in the form of Section 230 to do it, then that's actually just a federal carrot and stick that makes this state-like action in the mantle of private enterprise, which still means that the First Amendment applies. And so I personally think that President Trump could bring that case and take it all the way to the real Supreme Court, not the fake sham Facebook corporate Supreme Court thing that we heard about last week, but the real U.S. Supreme Court and have, have a pretty good legal grounds to be able to win. And I think Clarence Thomas has already you know, played his cards a little bit about where he's coming out on that set of issues. I'd be interested in seeing where the rest of the justices come out as well. But I think it could be the iconic defining case of our time. That's on big tech censorship. Why do you think he hasn't? Well, look, I mean, I don't I don't know. him, uh, And I can't really speak to that. But I think that if I were in his shoes, I would be bringing that case. Absolutely. And I wouldn't be doing it for myself. He, he could presumably start a media network of his own. He has access to be able to get his opinions out to the American people if he wants to. I would do it on behalf of the people that don't enjoy that position of authority that he might enjoy, that position of accessing the American people through other means. This is happening every day where people who are being deplatformed aren't the people who actually have alternative networks that they could go on. They are people whose voice has literally been suppressed because they are forced to choose between the First Amendment and the American dream, between speaking up and saying what they actually believe and keeping their job and putting food on the dinner table. And to me, America is not a place that makes you to choose between the First Amendment and the American dream. You get to have both. And so if I were President Trump, I think that one of the most impactful things that he could do is to bring that case. And if I were him, I would say, you know what? Once I get my account restored, which should be the damages here, I don't want to make any money off this. I'm actually going to leave the network voluntarily, but I'm doing this on behalf of people who don't have the privilege and position that I do to be able to reach people in a different way, because this is actually a defining issue of free speech in our time. So whether it's him or whether it's somebody else who's been deplatformed for the wrong reason, I think that this theory of combining state action with the actions of private companies is a winning legal theory, in my opinion, that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. So that's on big tech censorship. I I could give you a separate one, Lisa, where I think employees who are fired for their political beliefs also have a legal theory that they could bring under current existing legal doctrines, too, which is, again, using Supreme Court jurisprudence about religion. So according to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, You can't discriminate on the basis of religious belief. And usually people think about that as meaning correctly. You can't discriminate against an employee for their religion. You can't fire an employee for belonging to a certain religion. But often forgotten is that it equally means that an employer can't enforce their religion and force it down the throats of their employees. They can't force them to bow down to a cross. They can't force them to pray pray, pray on behalf of the Quran or whatever. And guess what? That then raises the question of whether wokeness today meets the legal standard for a religion. And I think if you look at the core tenets of wokeness today in the United States, it meets the Supreme Court's test in spades. Supreme Court's actually even said that secular humanism counts as a religion. It said that, well, in a, in a funny case a number of years ago, a religion called creativity, uh, in my opinion, a rather goofy religion, which says that white supremacy is its guiding principle, where what is good for white people is ultimately what achieves you salvation, and what is bad for white people is ultimately a form of sin. It's not a religion I subscribe to, but it's definitely a religion in the case of the Supreme Court, in a case called Peterson, that the Supreme Court heard, which said that this religion professing white supremacy as its core tenet counted as a religion for the purpose of Title VII. If white supremacy counts as a religion, then anti-white supremacy, which is wokeness today, counts as a religion too. And employers can't, like Disney, for example, just see what we saw last week, can't force that religion down the throats of their employees any more than they could force any other religion down the throats of their employees as well. And so I too think that is a well-grounded, legally well-founded case that any employee who's fired for their political beliefs can really take all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think the Supreme Court would likely side with this on the side of the correct plaintiff if the facts were correct. And that could be done even without Republicans doing what I think Republicans ought to do, which is step up and amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by adding political belief as a protected class. If they fall short of doing that, as, as I think Republicans are prone to do, you know, there's still legal action available in the courts. But see, I guess my concern is if conservatives are awake enough, because I, I look at, you know, as you're talking about with some of this critical race theory and what's happening in corporations and the rest of America, that, you know, time is of the essence. 
You look at the past few months with COVID lockdowns and the authoritarian nature of the left, just shutting down businesses, denying people the opportunity to go to church, to worship, deciding who gets to exercise their First Amendment rights and who doesn't. It's fine to go out and protest among thousands, but you can't go to church or there's limitations on how many people can go. Uh, And then, you know, on on top of it, you, you look at some of these things that the left wants to do with, you know, H.R. 1, et cetera. Uh, and, and then you look at what happened to President Trump, as you pointed out, getting kicked off of social media, certain banks not doing business with him, et cetera. But I, I guess it doesn't feel to me that people are awake enough looking at collectively all these different things I've mentioned or, or even looking at the muted reaction to President Trump getting kicked off Twitter. Like, it doesn't seem like conservatives are as awake as they need to for the fight that's ahead of us. Well, I'll say the Republican Party is not awake to it. That much I can say for sure in that we are. I say we. I don't. I self-identify now as conservative. I don't even really identify as a Republican. I don't know what. I, I always have, but you know, you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. More, but 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 I think Republicans appear to be not really well cut to that task today because they're shackled by the dogmas of 1980, where Ronald Reagan, by the way, one of my heroes, identified the real threat to liberty and prosperity in his era, which was big government. And he came in and slashed regulations, cut taxes, did what he needed to do to protect American liberty and prosperity from the biggest threat of his day in 1980. But as Dorothy might have said to Toto in The Wizard of Oz, we're not in 1980 anymore. And actually, another great quote, another great Republican from 160 years ago, if I may, Abraham Lincoln, the dogmas of a quiet past, he said at the time, are inadequate to the stormy present. I think the dogmas of 1980 are inadequate to meet the challenges of 2021 and the free market that we idealize as conservatives. We have to recognize that that does not exist today. The new market that exists is actually a figment of other actors who are manipulating that market to meet their own goals, including big government itself in ways that I described earlier. And so the solutions that we need in the 21st century in the year 2021 are different than just reciting some slogan that we memorized in 1980. We need actual solutions that meet the moment of where we are today. Now, I don't think that everyday conservatives are blind to that. I do think that they're disempowered right now to be able to fight back against this movement because the legal system is stacked. Certain protect, certain classes are protected. You can't discriminate on the basis of a whole range of criteria, but you can discriminate on the basis of your political belief. And today that means if you're a conservative, you have to send your kids to the public schools and accept a certain dogma because that's where they got to be educated. But public schools have been completely overrun by this new infectious religion. It's a secular religion, but religion nonetheless, that's been established as the religion that's ultimately being indoctrinated, that our kids are being indoctrinated by. So I think that they're disempowered to be able to address it. I think it is the job of a leading political party in our country to at least be at the forefront of that debate. But I think the problem with the current Republican Party is it doesn't really understand the issues or if it understands the issues is dormant in dealing with them. And and what we really need is a new North Star for the conservative movement that recognizes that the real enemy to liberty and prosperity today is not just big government. That is half the equation. But it is this new hybrid of big government and big business. It's what I call the woke industrial complex. That is the new Leviathan that is far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned four centuries ago. It is far more powerful than what either big government or big business could do alone. They've entered into a marriage. It's an unholy alliance. It is not a marriage of love, by the way. It is a marriage of convenience. It is more like mutual prostitution. But they have together birthed this new uniquely 21st century monster that's far more powerful than anything we've seen in the course of American history. And it is up to the conservative movement to step up and recognize that. And and I don't think the Republican Party has proven itself up to that task. But I do think that, that our work is cut out for us in the next couple of years, because I do think we're in an era, as I said in the very beginning, where if we don't take action pretty soon, the damage is going to become irreversible. Well, and the irony is the stupidity of the direction our country is heading in and where a lot of these, quote unquote, anti-racists are the race themselves. I mean, the idea is blatantly just disgusting, the concept that somehow minority kids can't do math, so somehow you have to dumb it down for them. That's inherently racist. Uh, or you've got companies like or, or you've got companies like Disney uh, telling employees to recognize their white privilege. That's inherently racist. And so the irony of where we've arrived is all these people who are, you know, quote unquote, putting them in the anti-racist bucket are actually just a bunch of racists. Well, I think anti-racism, Lisa, is the single greatest form of institutionalized systemic racism now in the United States that's taken hold of every major institution as we know it. And it starts as this form of anti-white racism. You put your finger on it where you're, if you're white, you're inherently stained with the guilt, white guilt and, and white privilege. 
at the point of your birth, irrespective of who you are or what your attitudes are. But it doesn't stop there, because once you engage in that form of anti-white racism, that actually triggers a new wave of anti-black racism in response. And then that actually breaks us into tribes and ultimately sets us on a spiral all the way to the bottom. And so in the name of anti-racism, we're actually becoming a more racist country in a way that makes me makes me sad, actually, as I watch this every day pollute the minds of our next generation. We say math is racist because there's somehow racially unequal outcomes. Math isn't racist, but I'll tell you what might be is failing to open the schools for poor kids in the inner city who may not be able to learn math in schools. We can talk about whether that's racist. And that actually reveals the heart of what's going on, which is using this mantle of wokeness as a way to deflect accountability for failed policies that were supposedly helping the very, that were supposed to help the very people that they're failing today. Now I got to, you brought Disney and, and I would be remiss if I didn't comment on this too, because I think it's something that, that a lot of us have missed which is that there's another actor on the scene in recent years that took this unholy alliance, right, between big business and big government, and and if I may say it, turned into a threesome. And that new actor is the Communist Party of China, right? They understand this game far more deeply than any of us do. There's there's even a a Chinese word now for woke white people in the United States. It's called baitsuo, literally refers to woke white people in the United States, and they use it to laugh at us. And more than laughing at us, they're now using wokeism as a geopolitical tool to erode our moral standing on the global stage. And if you have any doubt about that, I encourage you to just look at what they are saying at every diplomatic meeting over the last year. Last year, the EU presses Xi Jinping on the Uyghur human rights crisis, where, by the way, we're talking about a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, who, by the way, Apple uses as slave labor to make their iPhones. They don't tell you that. That's a separate point. The first thing that Xi Jinping says in response is that Black Lives Matter shows that the United States is no better. And then you look at his deputy, Yang Jiechi, their top diplomat, comes to the Alaska summit last month and lectures us in his opening statement for 15 minutes on how the United States is, his word, slaughtering black Americans. And that China, he hopes that China hopes that the United States does better on human rights. And that would be laughable. But you ask yourself how they're able to get away with this. And it comes back to companies like Disney, actually. And I'll tell you how. Where Disney criticizes white privilege in its training for employees this month. Two years ago, it says it can't film in the state of Georgia if Georgia passes the equivalent of a heartbeat bill, a new anti-abortion law. And yet last year, it films Mulan in the Shenzhen province of China without saying a peep. That is ground zero, the epicenter of the Uyghur human rights crisis. Until the very end, they decided to speak up after they filmed it when they said, we thank you, the CCP and the local authorities in Shenzhen for allowing us the privilege of filming here. And, you know, the NBA is even worse. So when these corporations become the new multinational moral arbiters, but apply their moral arbitration unevenly, the guys who are known for criticizing injustice here in the United States stay silent in China. That actually creates a false moral equivalence between Chinese nihilism and American idealism between China and the United States. And in my view, that's actually the real Chinese virus that we need to fight. It is not a biological virus. It is a cultural virus whose consequences could be far-reaching, far beyond this year. And I think few people on both sides of the political aisle have actually put their finger on this pulse in the way in which wokeism is now not just infecting capitalism, it's infecting geopolitics in a way that actually might erode our standing vis-a-vis China, and even in more limited ways vis-a-vis Russia. You saw Navalny being accused by Russia of being a racist, and that's why he actually had to be silenced. They are catching on to these new tools and playing it back against us. China's You know, they're playing us like a Chinese mandolin, if I may say it, by using those woke values as a way of advancing their own agenda at our expense. Hold that thought. Quick break. Back on the other side. Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. Folks say this new solar generator from 4Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. 
You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to fourpatriots.com slash Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. My favorite line from, uh, if you remember the the monologue that Rich, Ricky Gervais did, I think it was at the 2020 Golden Globes, and he was like, if ISIS started a streaming service, you would call your agents, which is really underscores what hypocrites all these people are, as you just laid out with corporate America. We saw with the uh, NBA, you know, the list goes on, movies, et cetera. You know, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. But I but I, I think, you know, in having this conversation with you, and I've, I've recently had conversations with uh, Maximo Alvarez, is a, a Cuban exile, and it's... It it seems to all come down to communism. I mean, you look at critical race theory, it's a Marxist idea, I mean, it really all comes down to communism. And and one thing that, you know, he was talking about is how the, you know, communist government, what they wanted to do was to pit, you know, farmers against, uh, you know, people that live in the city, pit the city, city dwellers against the farmers, rich versus poor, poor versus, uh, you know, rich. White versus split, you know, I mean, the list goes on and it's all about creating these divisions in America. And it seems that's where we are right now. I think there's, I think there's truth in what you say, except it's even worse. I think this is worse than communism. And the reason is communism was based in the intellectual heritage of Marxism, where agree with it or not. And I don't. But agree with it or not, at least it was based on the foundation of economic injustice that you if you were economically disempowered, that was the real injustice. It wasn't so much about the color of your skin. It could bring people together across different nationalities, across different skin colors. If you were a member of the proletariat, you were oppressed by the bourgeoisie. And it was a divide and conquer strategy, to be sure. It was one that was based on a lie of invisible social power structures that didn't really exist, but were used by communist dictators to be able to use those so-called invisible power structures to their own advantage. There's a lot wrong with it, but we don't need to relitigate that. That was done in 1980. I think that, and, and, and ultimately culminating in the fall of the fall of the wall in the early 90s. But this is worse because now it's not really about even economic injustice, but it's about this new conception of alleged racial injustice, which says that irrespective of the amount of money you have, irrespective of your upbringing, if you're black, you're inherently disadvantaged. And irrespective of your upbringing, whether you were poor or not, if you're white, you're inherently privileged. And to me, there's something even more toxic about that philosophy, which says that it is what you were born with. It, it's a combination of it's a mutant hybrid between communism and the caste system, which says that actually your economic, your, your long run plight as an agent in the world is determined not even by your economic standing, but by your genetics, by who you were on the date that you were born. You are a per prisoner of the color of your skin. That's really at the heart of modern critical race theory and wokeism, which I think bears a lot of similarities to Marxism. But I think it's even worse because it combines it with this notion of inborn caste, where at least in the Marxist worldview, somebody who was poor could go on to become a member of the rich bourgeoisie class. And there was some notion of mobility, even if it was divisive here. This says that no matter how rich you are, you could be a black billionaire. You're still ultimately you're ultimately stained with disadvantage versus poor white working class in the opioid rust belt in Ohio. That doesn't matter, irrespective of economics. 
it's race that ultimately governs whether you enjoy advantage or privilege. Well, and I think uh, I probably misrepresented so at Maximo's point was that this is in the same vein of what the communists did in Cuba in terms of dividing people. But now it's along racial lines in America, as, as, as you just laid out so eloquently. And what's frustrating to me is a lot of these people who are driving this divide, you know, on the left primarily, they're not providing solutions for people that would make individuals' lives better. You know, for instance, zip code determines a child's future uh, far too often in the sense of obviously you have better educational opportunities if you live in a wealthier neighborhood. There's going to be a better school system, even a better public school system. Or you see a lot of people on the left being against school choice or even someone like Senator Cory Booker actually used to be for school choice until he started seeking a, a you know a higher uh, a national profile and then he turned on it and he actually used to work with Betsy DeVos and then gave a scathing speech against her confirmation. But all these people who purport to care about this issue actively work against things that could help minorities or could help children achieve better success in the future. And that's what infuriates me. Yeah, absolutely. This is really just a way of of achieving greater power for the people who use the terms, right? This isn't about, I mean, and that's actually one of the things the left has actually mastered, the use of terminology to pack in behind that terminology an agenda that has nothing to do with the term itself. Just take Black Lives Matter. It is a Marxist organization that calls for the decimation of the nuclear family structure, and yet I don't know what that has to do with actual protection of black lives. It professes to care about black lives. In fact, it's about some completely orthogonal agenda. This is what we sort of see the left having mastered is you come up with the right label, but you pack a lot of a power driven agenda behind it. That's actually about empowering and often even enriching the very people who are pushing that philosophy and allows them to evade accountability by creating this new woke smokescreen that ultimately distracts everyone by the things they say rather than the things that they actually do. And I think that that ought to be part of the calling card for the new conservative movement, too, is to actually counterintuitively recognize the very injustices that the left has monopolized as their causes of concern, economic disparities and access to capital formation, access to education. We actually care about these solutions. We actually care about these problems in a way that actually makes us want to deliver actual solutions that address the problem rather than one that just thrives on a new narrative of victimhood. And I think that victim, the left has turned victimhood into this new cultural currency in the United States. And I, I personally think that that actually hurts the very people that it was supposed to help, like all bubbles. And I think victimhood as a currency is now in a bubble of its own. When it bursts, it actually hurts the very people it was supposed to help. Well, I see th- the same thing with respect to the victimhood culture that ultimately evades accountability for solving the actual problems that people might face in their, in their everyday hardship. What's your vision for America? Well, look, I think that I think that my vision for America is the vision for America that we began with 250 years ago, which is that America isn't even a place. It's just a vision of what a place can be. It is a set of ideas that brought an otherwise divided polyglot group of people together. And more so than any nation in human history, America wasn't based on a single monarch or a single religion or a single ethnicity or a single language. No, it was based on a set of ideas. And I think that today, I don't even have a good answer. We don't have a good answer to the question of what does it mean to be an American in the year 2021. And I think that absence of an answer to that question is actually the black hole at the center of our nation's soul. And so I think that we need to revive the basic ideals that brought us together in the first place. Ideas like the American dream, e pluribus unum, from many, one. And and I think that these are the ideals that won the American Revolution. They're the ideals that reunited us after the Civil War. They're the ideals that won World War I and World War II and the Cold War. And I personally think they're still the ideals that give hope to the free world as we know it. And if we can revive our sense of America as an ideal, then I don't think anybody, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is going to defeat us. But that is the hard work that we're going to have to do is to look to our history to identify not perfection, because America has never been a perfect country, never will be a perfect country. Perfection doesn't exist. But more so than any nation in human history, America is the pursuit of perfection. We've said it since day one, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of liberty, equality and justice for all. It's called the American dream for a reason. It's not a destination we reach. It's a vision that we aspire to. But reviving those basic ideas, the ideas that no matter who you were, who your parents were, where you came from, you could achieve anything you want in this country with hard work, ingenuity and your own dedication. Reviving those ideas, that's part of my vision for America, is taking the American idea 
to mean something more than just being a bunch of higher mammals occupying a common space doing what our iPhones tell us to do on a given day. That is not America. America is the set of ideas that brought us together in the first place. And I think that it begins with civic education. I think that we're overdue for a, for a conversation about civic service that we implement in the next generation of kids to satisfy their hunger for a cause, their hunger for what it means to be an American, starting at a young age, starting to reconstruct our history rather than just criticize it and deconstruct it as we're doing in our schools today. So I think civic education plays a big role in that. I think a revival, a civic revival across all of our institutions is really important. I do think that there are some legal solutions that we need in the near term to hold the tide and ultimately hold back the woke epidemic that's infecting all of our institutions. But that's really just the first step. The longer run vision is, is a civic revival in this country that reminds us of who we are as Americans in a way that brings us together across all of these divisive identity politic lines. When are you running for political office? You know, I was I was in somebody encouraged me to a couple of people I respect encouraged me to do that, uh, you know, at the start of this year, actually. I'd vote for you. Well, thank you, Lee. So that means a lot to me. I, I love listening to you. So that that means a lot to me. I so I, I needed to do something first. And that was actually writing this book that I was working on. And the reason that was important is that I think in the moment we live in today, as I said earlier, big government is a problem, but it's only part of the problem. I think the real cultural problem in America today spreads beyond big government to every institution in the private sector, from our museums to our schools, to our universities, to the companies where we work, to the community centers where we gather. That is really where the everyday threat to liberty and prosperity is playing itself out. That is where the battle line is ultimately being forged. And one side is expanding that battle line further and further as it continues to win in this culture of fear. And so I've been a successful entrepreneur, right? I had been educated in the same elite institutions. I understand how to speak that language. I am fluent in that language. I have lived in that world and seen it firsthand for myself. And I actually felt a sense of obligation to see through the project that I started over the last year and a half, which was exposing that for what it was. Because I think it's important that every American see that game for what it is so that we can use that as a first step to forging a better path forward. And so, you know, look, I mean, there was, there was a lot of people were encouraging me to run for the Senate seat that opened up in Ohio with Rob Portman announcing that he was going to step down. A lot of people have stepped in to do that. You know, I, I thought about it for, for a hot second, but at the end of the day, I thought it was really more important to focus on this new national movement outside of government, in our culture, in our private sector first, and, and to really re-energize our interest in answering the question of what it means to be American, even outside of government, in our place of work and in our communities. And that's what I'm focused on with the rollout of the book is building that new that new American movement. And we'll see where that goes. I do think that public service is important. It involves a lot of sacrifice. And it's something that I'm open to in my future, but I'm not going to really turn to that until after this book is out, after I've really seen to starting this new movement in the private sector, which I think may be even more important than a movement in government today. And everyone go out and get Woke Inc. It's out August 17th, 2021, uh, which is this August, obviously. <laughs> and uh, wise words, incredibly accomplished man. Vivek, I really appreciate what you said today. This is a fascinating conversation. You're obviously welcome on any time. I hope the book is a massive success and I, and I am I know I'm looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate it. And, and really, and it, with, with respect to the book, this isn't a commercial venture for me, really. Any, if there's any net profit that comes out of it for me personally, I'm just putting it right back into the underlying agenda. And what I really care about is starting that new American movement this fall. So thanks for having me, and, and we'll keep the conversation going. Awesome. Take care. Thanks so much. I want to thank Vivek Ramaswamy again for such a smart and interesting interview. And I want to thank all of you at home as well for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Lisa Marie Booth. Special thanks to our team, producer John Cassio, writer Aaron Kliegman, researcher Margaret Smith, and executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, who are all part of the Gingrich 360 network and team. 
Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.